Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Ambassador David Scheer. Dave Scheer began and ended his 30-plus year career in the U.S. government on the front lines of a critical question the world faces with a resurgent China. Will Beijing play by international rules or break existing frameworks in pursuit of its own policy objectives? Scheer was a young political officer on the ground in Beijing as units of the People's Liberation Army entered Tiananmen Square in June 1989. He saw firsthand the will of the Chinese Communist Party to spill blood in order to stay in power. A career foreign service officer, Scheer then worked in other posts in Asia, including managing the military alliance relationship with Japan and as ambassador to Vietnam, before returning to Washington to be the assistant secretary of defense for Asia. In that position, during the second part of the Obama administration, he had to orchestrate the U.S. response to the PLA's campaign to militarily fortify a string of land features in the South China Sea. These are disputed international waters, and despite an international tribunal's ruling against Beijing, this building campaign continues and is seen as the pointy end of the spear of Chinese assertiveness in the region. On the South Lawn of the White House in September 2015, Chinese President Xi Jinping very publicly declared that China, quote, had no intention to militarize, unquote, the South China Sea. President Obama addressed the issue in an interview with CNN's Fareed Zakaria in 2016 with a bit of a warning. Part of what I've tried to communicate to President Xi is that uh, the United States uh, arrives at its power in part by restraining itself. And when we bind ourselves to a bunch of international norms and rules, uh, it's not because we have to, it's because we recognize that over the long term, building a strong international order uh, is in our interests, and I think over the long term will be in China's interests as well. So where we see them violating international rules and norms, uh, as uh, we have seen in some cases in the South China Sea or in some of their uh, behavior when it comes to economic policy, we've been very firm, and we've indicated to them that uh, there will be consequences. But our discussion with Ambassador Shear starts with a much different China, gray Beijing of the 1980s, when popular unhappiness with inflation and internal political jockeying among senior leaders would lead to the bloodshed of Tiananmen. Ambassador Shear, thanks so much for taking time. So great to have you. It's great to be here, James. I wanted to start with your first posting in Beijing and just talk a little bit about what it was like and what China was like at that time. Well, I worked on China between uh, 1984 and 1989. And I did that on two assignments, one with the China desk at the State Department, one as a political officer at the embassy in Beijing. My first uh, visit to China was in 1984. And it's hard to describe the contrast between the China of 1984 and the China of now. But I think uh, if I tried to do that, I'd use Shanghai. If you go to Shanghai now and stand on the Bund and look across the Huangpu River, you see a vast burgeoning 21st century global city. And in 1984, all you saw was a tidal flat 
with a lot of scrap steel yards and uh, shipbreaking areas. So as Shanghai has come a long way, so has China. And so when you went to Beijing, what was your job? I was a political officer uh, in the political section of the embassy. My job was to cover uh, Chinese domestic politics. And in that capacity, I followed Chinese human rights practices. I followed Chinese policy in Tibet, uh, as well as overall domestic politics. And I cut my teeth as a a Pekingologist uh, in the Foreign Service and reporting on what I could find out about domestic politics uh, from my perch in the embassy in Beijing. And so at that time, uh, Mao's died, Deng Xiaoping ascends. There is some move since 1978-79 at the third plenum to reform and opening. What did China feel like then, and what were the kind of debates that people were having at that moment? Well, uh, in Chinese terms, it felt a little like the Wild wild West. Uh, Deng Xiaoping had uh, put a very positive sanction on um, economic reform. People were looking for opportunities both to reform and to make money. Zhao Ziyang was the premier. Uh, who was very strongly uh, pro-reform. There was talk not only about economic reform in those days, in the late 80s, but there was also talk of political reform. So on the one hand, prospects looked pretty bright for reform and opening in China generally. On the other hand, China was experiencing uh, heavy inflation. There were huge movements of people from the countryside to the urban areas. There was a great potential for urban unrest. So you had these two, you had the yin and the yang of Chinese politics uh, playing out uh, before our eyes in the years and months just prior to the Tiananmen massacre. And so then you were there right before, did you leave in the summer of 89? I covered the the student demonstrations leading up to the massacre. I followed several student marches all the way from Beijing University to Tiananmen Square. I remember in that huge, huge square in the course of one demonstration, just being uh, shoulder to shoulder uh, with hundreds of thousands of other Chinese people, not just students, but workers and bureaucrats as well, who were discontented with the way the Communist Party was running things. And how did they see you as a foreigner, an American diplomat? What was that discussion like? Some Chinese, of course, were very reticent and very suspicious. Others uh, just wanted to talk. And I made sure that everybody I talked to knew I was from the American embassy just so they could they could uh, weigh the risk in their own minds before they said something to me. But I found people who were willing to talk. I found students who were willing to talk. And we, we learned a lot as the square faced disaster that late May and early June of 1989. You've gone back to China many times since then. Were people at that moment, knowing you were an American diplomat, in some ways more open or more willing to discuss what they thought was happening than they are today? Even then, uh, at the height of the Deng Xiaoping, Zhao Ziyang reforms, people were pretty wary. People were wanted to be very careful about how they uh, related to a foreigner, especially a foreigner who worked for uh, an embassy. Um, so... Um, my sense is that Chinese are always careful. They may be a bit more careful now, given uh, Xi Jinping's imposition of greater discipline on on people. So then you left right before the crackdown, or were you there? Then? No, I was there. I was there during the crackdown. Uh, 
I was on the square until the evening of. I spent all night in the square the night before the massacre, and uh, and had had to go back to the embassy for a rest. And on my way back, I encountered a uh, in front of the Genghua Hotel on the way to the embassy uh, a a long PLA convoy full of uh, what looked like hardened PLA infantrymen whose uh, weapons were, as we say, cocked and locked. And that convoy had been stopped by a crowd of Chinese uh, civilians um, who, at least temporarily, were preventing it from proceeding to the square. I went back to the square uh, very soon after the, the, like the day after the massacre, uh, to have a look. And I remember vividly uh, what, it, what a, a tank with a 50 caliber machine gun looks like, um, and it's pretty intimidating, um, as are Chinese uh, armored personnel carriers. I watched uh, multiple convoys pass my apartment on uh, Zhenguaman Avenue the evening of the massacre, and uh, along the sides of Zhenguaman Avenue were some very irate Chinese civilians who would try and pick off stragglers, and beat the you-know-what out of stragglers if they could pick them off. As these convoys went into the square, I'll never forget the smell of the transmission fluid of that armor. My family was evacuated uh, in the days immediately following uh, the massacre, which was a good thing. My assignment ended about a month after the Tiananmen massacre, uh, and I spent the days and weeks after the massacre basically doing two things. One was trying to determine for the embassy how many Chinese had actually died in the massacre. And I put out a cable on that, which I think has been declassified since. What was your estimate at the time? If I recall correctly, it was around 500. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second thing we did was help evacuate American citizens from Beijing. And the embassy formed uh, its own convoys with minivans, uh, uh, very clearly marked as embassy vehicles, and uh, uh, circulated through the city um, to places known to have American students or American expatriates uh, to pick them up. So we, we spent a fair amount of time traveling through streets still barricaded by protesters and still manned by young PLA soldiers with um, their AK-47s on the ready. This is a time hard to think about, but before email and before there was an easy way to, before cell phones, before there was an easy way to connect with American citizens and who might be studying or or working in China, um, what was that like to drive through the streets of Beijing at a time when it was almost on lockdown? It was very challenging. Um, And we had a group of army attaches at the embassy who knew every street in Beijing almost knew every license, military license plate uh, in Beijing and could scope out the situation pretty well and, and find ways for us to either bypass barricades or get through them safely. Was it a surprise ending of your tour there? That is, when you got there, there was talk of reform and there was consideration of different aspects of reform. And then when you left, reform seemed to be uh, kind of off the table. Well, of course, when I arrived in China in 1986, um, Everybody was talking about reform, or at least uh, informed uh, elite people were talking about reform. And it looked like great possibilities lay before the Chinese people. 
And when I left, uh, the government had shot 500 plus of its citizens, had established martial law, and had clamped down quite considerably nationwide. And remember that the Tiananmen Square demonstrations, those demonstrations and that unrest was not restricted to Beijing. It happened all over the country, particularly in, in places like Shanghai, Guangzhou, and in Sichuan as well. I learned a lot about Chinese politics throughout my assignment there, but I think it's important to understand that what happened in connection with the Tiananmen massacre happened because a struggle for power was taking place among the Chinese leadership for the succession to Deng Xiaoping. And the winner was Li Peng, and the loser was Zhao Ziyang. But the demonstrations and the massacre happened because the Chinese leadership just, in the, in the context of the, the power struggle, couldn't make up its mind what to do about the demonstrations. So things got out of hand from the perspective of the Communist Party. And I think that experience combined with uh, what the Chinese saw happening in Gorbachev's Russia may have imparted some lessons on, on current Chinese leader Xi Jinping about the fragility of communist rule and the need for the party to be very, very disciplined. And Zhao Ziyang had been on a foreign trip some point right before, That's during right. the demonstrations. He'd been to North Korea, if I recall correctly. And everybody who followed the massacre remembers Zhao Ziyang's descent to the square, where he, he went to the, what was what was being used as the headquarters for the students, and he said, it's too late. I have come too late. Let me just follow that up by saying there were a lot of developments between the United States and China after the Tiananmen massacre. One was the imposition of Tiananmen-related sanctions by the Bush administration, um, followed in the 1990s by a loosening of in an improvement in U.S.-China bilateral relations and the the entry of China into the WTO during the Clinton administration. But th those of us who worked on China in the 1980s, particularly those of us who worked in connection with the Tiananmen massacre, never, ever lost our wariness about how to deal with China and never, ever lost sight of what American interests were with regard to China. I think the 1980s bred a very hard-headed generation of China hands in the U.S. government, not just in the State Department. Are there other folks that come to mind, colleagues, that you... A Richard Boucher, Jim Keith, a Jim Lilly, of course, uh, made it through all that as ambassador. Steve Schleicher, all great China hands. Uh, After that time in China, you then, my sense was, spent a fair amount of time working on Japan and that alliance relationship, how would you contrast your tour in China versus working with an allied country like Japan? And kind of From the standpoint of a diplomat, working with a country like China uh, is very, very different from working with a country like Japan. After all, Japan is a, is a long-time ally. We have been working closely with the Japanese since 1945. We have very, very strong common interests and a very, very deep reservoir of trust. And nothing promotes smooth, effective diplomacy like trust between two sides. 
And that's something I think the U.S. and China traditionally have lacked. Um, there is much less trust between Chinese and American diplomats and, and leaders. Although we've, we have defined common interests and we have cooperated with the Chinese in pursuing those common interests, there is a good deal less trust between China, which is a potential rival, and Japan, which is a very, very close ally. I know you're a student of history and kind of geostrategy. Uh, Joe Nye and Rich Armitage have kind of different views about how to manage U.S. relations with Asia kind of inside out or kind of outside in. That is, do you build a pattern of alliances and think about those sorts of relationships with, say, Japan and Philippines as a way to lead your Asia policy or is dealing with the mainland and China really the way to go forward? At this, this moment in our discussion, if you have kind of thoughts about how to manage U.S. relations with Asia from that kind of broad strategic picture. Well, as you say, the classic distinction in Asianists in Washington is that between the people who uh, want to engage China and the people, the ring strategists who want to emphasize the importance of our allies. And I've always thought that you have to do both. Uh, you can't engage China effectively without uh, building strong alliances and using those alliances as leverage in your approach to China. And that's, that's I think, uh, was the point of the pivot um, in the Obama administration. And I, I think that's where the Trump administration ultimately will head as well. So moving on to your time back at the State Department, you were head of the China desk uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration, and there was a discussion of what a dialogue structure should look like with China. The Bush administration under Hank Paulson had set up the strategic economic dialogue, which brought a number of different cabinet secretaries on the economic side together to, in some ways, force an interagency discussion on the Chinese side, which didn't happen too much on economic issues. The Obama administration came in, and, and under Secretary Clinton, there was a decision that this discussion had to be broadened and so that it would include not only economic but also foreign policy issues. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about kind of your role and how you saw that? Uh, well, before I uh, came back to the State Department in 2008 to be director of the China desk, of course, um, the Bush administration was winding down, and the overall context was the, the, the 2008 financial crisis. That led people to believe that they, on the economic side in the U.S. government, that we had to use the already existing strategic economic dialogue established by Secretary of the Treasury Paulson to coordinate as closely with, uh, with the Chinese as possible on maintaining uh, global financial stability and in encouraging the Chinese to uh, stimulate their economy and maintain their exchange rate. Um, and we thought that, that that would help stabilize the global financial system, the global economy. And my, my sense was that Sec uh, President Bush and Secretary Paulson were using the strategic economic dialogue at the end of that administration uh, to pursue those very important economic goals. And I, my sense was that they were, they were fairly successful. I think the Chinese were, took a, a fairly constructive approach both towards uh, global systemic issues and their own, the, the role their own economic policy played in stabilizing the financial system. 
But as the financial system stabilized following the crash, um, and as the Obama administration came in, I think, I certainly believe that we needed to expand our senior most level contacts beyond the economic sphere to look at other areas where we might potentially cooperate with the Chinese, particularly on global issues. Uh, but that wasn't the only reason for expanding the strategic economic dialogue. Um, there were two other important reasons, I think. One of them was not just to look for areas where we could cooperate, but to manage areas where we clearly disagreed. Uh, and a third reason was because U.S.-China relations remain stable when we maximize senior-level interactions. Um, and I saw the strategic and economic dialogue, which succeeded Paulson's strategic economic dialogue, as a way f primarily for senior-most people in the U.S. and Chinese leaderships to get to know each other, to define perspectives on the issues that faced us, to look for areas where we could cooperate, as, as well as manage issues on which we didn't agree. And I remember in the May 2010 Strategic and Economic Dialogue in Beijing how sharp our exchanges with the Chinese were on two issues. One was the North Korean sinking of the Chin'an, the South Korean patrol boat, which had happened just before the Strategic and Economic Dialogue took place. And the second issue was the South China Sea. And I remember Dai Bingguo leaning over the table and looking at Kurt Campbell and saying on the South China Sea, we know what you're doing behind our back. Why do you think it's important for the leaders of the two countries to talk and have some sense of what's going on on the other side of the world? One reason is that decision-making in China is very top-down. So to get, get decisions made in China, yet, in many cases, uh, you have to start at the top when hard decisions are involved. Uh, second, uh, leaders just need to be in the habit of communication. And if they're in the habit of communication, the president can pick up the phone and call his or her Chinese counterpart and uh, talk through a crisis. Um, it's been said for a long time that the president uh, is the real director of the China desk in the U.S. government. I think that's true. And that's important uh, for the Chinese. Uh, so. It, it's, it's critically important that senior levels maintain regular contact because um, the, the risks of uh, miscalculation or miscommunication are so great in U.S.-China relations. I think one of the frustrations for the U.S. participants in these series of dialogues is sometimes they felt like they didn't get much from their Chinese counterparts. They got talking points. And I'm sure the Chinese complain the same thing about our side that we gave talking points. Uh, now I'm thinking more of the kind of economic discussions. But even in the foreign policy ones, it's kind of quite staged. And it's quite different from what a U.S. politician would think of as a natural discussion. Given the kind of almost falseness of some of the preparedness in these discussions, you still think it's worthwhile to sit down and have them? Well, a large formal gathering of senior leaders between China and the United States will always be 
somewhat formal, but often what's important is less the formal meetings than the meetings on the margins, the informal meetings, the dinners, the lunches, the breakfast, Um, not just between the senior most people there, but among the working level people as well. It's just a tremendous opportunity to to communicate and to air out grievances and to look for areas of cooperation. Um, There are lots of ways of doing this. You don't have to do it um, with a a 40-car long motorcade full of cabinet-level people. You could do it separately. What's important is that the senior-most levels of both governments have regular contacts. That's one thing I'm a little worried about in connection with the Trump administration's management of the relationship. Senior-level contacts have been minimal, as far as I can tell, particularly moving into the president's encounter with President Xi at the G20 meeting. Can you just say from your time as the head of the desk and then moving into the deputy assistant secretary position, how did you see your role and, and how did you try to use that to advance U.S. interests? And how did the structure of the SNED or having some sort of dialogue kind of help you do that? Well, I was the deputy assistant secretary for China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong and Mongolia, um, 2009 to 2011. And the Deputy Assistant Secretary occupies an interesting position because they're not only responsible for ensuring that the working levels get things done and keep the trains moving, they're responsible for helping the Assistant Secretary and more senior officials in the government think through the issues and find creative or effective ways of uh, addressing our problems or establishing our strategy or implementing our strategy. So the Deputy Assistant Secretary is uh, sort of like a master sergeant, I guess, uh, uh, in terms of the the, uh, liaison role he or she plays between the senior most levels and the working levels. In your recollection, are there a couple of issues that come to mind that you really felt the SNED was an effective place to talk about them, even if they weren't resolved? Are there things that come to mind that you thought, yeah, we really did a good job at least explaining the U.S. position, if not kind of moving China towards us? Well, I, you know, I go back to the May 2010 SNED in Beijing, um, both on the subject of the sinking of the Chen'an and the subject of the South China Sea. We had very lengthy, intense, um, sometimes angry Um, discussions with the Chinese and there's just no better way for them to understand what your interests and goals are than for an irate senior official to sit down across from you and give them in this case her mind. Um, Secretary Clinton had very very strong uh, things to say to her Chinese counterpart State Counselor Dai Binguo on these subjects, and I think the Chinese got the message. You had mentioned the Obama Obama administration's pivot to Asia. Maybe now we could talk a little bit about how the SNED or the relationship with China kind of fit into that broader picture. And Could you just kind of lay the groundwork of what the policy was and then how China fit into that in the dialogue? Well, as I said earlier, you've got to use a combination of engagement and RIM strategy in your approach to the Chinese. And the SNED represented the engagement piece of the Obama strategy vis-a-vis China. The pivot represented the ring strategist approach to strengthening allies and generating leverage vis-a-vis the Chinese. I think the Chinese understood this. 
I think the pivot and the extent to which we strengthened our allies helped us in managing the region and in making sure that the Chinese were aware of our interests and in pressing our interests throughout the region. Were you also with Secretary Clinton when she went to the ASEAN meeting in which the South China Sea became particularly contentious? Secretary Clinton uh, went to the ASEAN Regional Forum in Hanoi in July of 2010. And it was at an event in connection with the ASEAN Regional Forum that she uh, articulated an American strategic interest in freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. As far as I can recall, that was the first time a senior American official had articulated a strategic interest in Southeast Asia since the early 1970s when we pulled out of Vietnam. So her remarks in Hanoi with regard to the South China Sea, I believe, were historic. And I think the Chinese thought they were quite a departure as well, given the angry reception her remarks received from the Chinese at that meeting. Uh, and this was uh, Yang Jiechen. That's right. Who had some choice words to say. The preparations for the secretary's speech um, actually began in, I'd say, early, late 2009, early 2010. And one of the events that uh, led us to consider what the secretary would say in Hanoi was the Chinese harassment of uh, an American military vessel in the South China Sea in March of 2009. I think that event plus other assertive Chinese behavior in the South China Sea signaled to us that the Chinese were taking a, a different approach a more assertive approach in the region and that we needed to start thinking of ways of, of, uh, of uh, responding to that. Well, I want to go back for a minute to 1996, if I may. 1996, I think, will be viewed as an important year in U.S.-China relations because of the crisis relating to the Taiwan Strait. In Late 1995 and early 1996, the Chinese announced closure areas in the seas next to Taiwan and fired test missiles uh, into those closure areas. This caused a crisis not only in Taiwan mainland relations, but in U.S.-China relations as well. And I think both sides took a lesson from this event. One was on the American side that the Chinese were going to get more assertive um, and that we had to start thinking about how to handle, how to, how to manage a, a region in which China was becoming more assertive. Um, and in connection with that, what role uh, a strengthened U.S.-Japan alliance would play in managing the region. I think that the lesson the Chinese took from that crisis was that they needed stronger uh, stronger military force um, deployable to the East China Sea. And the events that we're seeing unfold today in the South China Sea and the East China Sea can in part be traced back to the crisis over the Taiwan Strait in 1996. 
you think the PLA felt like they needed more options than simply closure areas off Taipei and Kaohsiung? That's right. If called upon by the civilian leadership. That's right. And I think it marked a, a much more mature, shall we say, uh, way of Chinese thinking about uh, area denial. Your time in Hanoi, you arrived in 2011, is that 2011. right? 2011. It was a time when uh, the U.S. was starting to negotiate more in earnest the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There, there are some strong similarities between China and Vietnam in this regard. They're, they're two uh, of the only remaining communist countries in the world uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union among the only countries still organized politically along Leninist lines. The two communist parties have historically very close relationships, and the Vietnam-China relationship is, is managed primarily between the two parties. Two communist parties. The two right. communist parties. So there are some very strong similarities, but there are also some strong differences. One is that China has 1.4 billion people, and Vietnam has about 93 million people. While Vietnam is borders China and has a, a long history of economic and cultural exchanges with China, the, the Vietnamese distrust of the Chinese runs very deep, and there's a very strong current of anti-Chinese nationalism among the Vietnamese people, which Vietnamese leaders have to pay attention to. How did, at that moment in 2011, 2012, 2013, how were Vietnamese-Chinese relations at that time, and then how did, say, the Trans-Pacific Partnership kind of play into that? Well, Vietnamese-Chinese relations at that time uh, were very complicated, particularly with regard to the South China Sea. Uh, the Vietnamese clearly were interested in cultivating stronger relations with the United States in order to generate leverage vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. And I think the U.S. was eager to respond positively to that. The challenge one has in going to Vietnam as an ambassador charged with building the relationship is, one, Vietnamese leaders walk on a tightrope um, when it comes to relations with China. So. Uh, the Vietnamese relationship with China is one of the limiting factors on what you can do. The other limiting factor on what you can do as ambassador to Vietnam is the fact that um, pivot notwithstanding, um, East Asia and Southeast Asia is not a high strategic priority for United States leaders. Um, they don't have the time. The Obama administration was clearly justifiably preoccupied with the Persian Gulf and South Asia. And when they turn their attention to Asia, they usually turn, turn it to North Korea. So S Southeast Asia is not a high priority. It does not get the pick of resources to, for us to pursue our goals. So we have to think of creative ways of maximizing our influence given those two limitations on how far we can go. And for me, one way of maximizing our influence was to get bring the, the Vietnamese into the negotiation on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And we made three arguments to the Vietnamese 
in this regard. One, of course, was that they would derive a huge straight economic benefit by uh, further opening their markets and taking advantage of the benefits of a more op open American market, as well as open markets among the other TPP participants. So that the first good reason for Vietnamese participation in TPP was that they would benefit economically. And it was clear that among all of the TPP players that Vietnam would probably be the one that benefited most, given its uh, economic circumstances. The second reason for pressing uh, TPP on the Vietnamese was that it would, it would promote Vietnamese economic reform. It would help Vietnamese leaders promote economic reform with Vietnam because they could point to the United States and say, we're not doing this because we want to, we're doing it because the Americans are forcing us to do it. That's what the Japanese call gaiatsu. It, it's worked for Japan, it's worked for Vietnam. What were the issues on opening or reforms? What, what were they trying to push well, through? Well, they've got it. They, at that time and still, they have to expand the scope of the free, the free market. They've got to reform the state-owned enterprise system. They've got to privatize more state-owned assets. And they've got to reform the financial system uh, as well and create more scope for the private economy. They understand that. Those reforms are very difficult for them politically and economically. TPP would have helped them do so. The third reason um, that appealed very strongly to the Vietnamese was the strategic reason. That is, as members of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Vietnam, like the other members of the TPP, could maximize diversity in their trading partnerships. They would not have to rely solely on their largest trading partner, China. And it's important to note that China is everybody's largest trading partner in the region now, not just Southeast Asia. So diversification is very important for them, and it's important not just for economic reasons, but for strategic reasons as well. And that's one of the tragedies of this administration's failure to uh, move forward on the, on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We have lost a strategic opportunity. At that time, I think the PRC ambassador to Vietnam, was it uh, Kong Shenyo, uh, was it someone that you had dealt with at your time ambassador or you didn't see him that much? I saw Kong Shenyo while he was ambassador. I, I saw his uh, successor in Hanoi as well. We, we, we dined together periodically and had good conversations. With regard to TPP, I think it's also important to note that before I even left Washington, and as it became clear that we needed to get the Vietnamese on board, that Vietnamese participation in the Trans-Pacific Partnership would not gain congressional, strong congressional support unless the Vietnamese made uh, demonstrable progress in how they handled human rights. So I went out to Hanoi determined to achieve demonstrable progress or help the Vietnamese achieve demonstrable progress in human rights using the Trans-Pacific Partnership as leverage. Uh, and we succeeded. I found allies in the Vietnamese government who understood the problem. We sat down and worked out a human rights to-do list. I distilled that to-do list onto a plasticized pocket card for my staff. 
which they pulled out at every opportunity when in, in the presence of a Vietnamese official to discuss. And as a result of that, the Vietnamese ratified the UN Convention Against Torture. They increased the number of registered churches, which were le legally sanctioned churches that could worship freely. They released a fair number of political prisoners. And I have to say that uh, since we pulled out of TPP, uh, the Vietnamese have walked back on, on some of that progress. Some of the areas other than TPP in which we sought to improve, of course, were defense relations. I remember sitting uh, with the Deputy Defense Minister Ving in my introductory courtesy call on him in September 2011, and I raised the subject of human rights, and he gave me a long disquisition on Vietnam's approach to human rights and Vietnam's independence. And as soon as I heard the word independence, I interrupted and I said, Mr. Minister, your independence is what U.S. policy toward Vietnam is all about. And on that basis, I started saying publicly that the United States wants a, a uh, strong, prosperous, and independent Vietnam. And I got Secretary Kerry and finally President Obama to start using that term. And I think the Trump administration is using it now to describe our approach to the whole region. I want to shift to your time at the Department of Defense in, in 2014. So you came back from Hanoi. And um, first, just a, a cultural question. How was it to move from your three decades in the State Department and the Foreign Service into the Pentagon? Well, I have to confess that for many of those decades, I viewed people in the office of the Secretary of Defense, or OSD, partly as rivals. So I, I went to OSD uh, with a somewhat prejudiced view, and, and the, the, the people in OSD dissolved that almost immediately on my arrival. These are people, civilians, in the office of the Secretary of Defense responsible for civilian oversight of the military. And uh, I haven't uh, encountered a, a more dedicated um, and energetic and loyal group of people in, in my career. They are first-rate American public servants. Although the State Department feels like it's quite small, uh, it's actually quite a large organization, but not as large as the Department of Defense, to go from the Foreign Service to a civilian at the Department of Defense. What were the difference in assets that you were looking at and your kind of management day-to-day? -day? What was the difference in, in those kind of two systems? How did you see it? Well, one difference between the State Department and, and DOD is that in the State Department, it's all civilians. And in DOD, it's a mix. And that mix is defined by the difference between the Office of the Secretary of Defense on one hand and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Joint Staff on the other, along with the individual services. So. DOD as an organization is much bigger and much more complicated, and it's a much more interesting, shall we say, place to navigate in many ways than the smaller and simpler State Department is. Even though in the State Department there are some big organizational differences among bureaus, DOD has a lot more resources. We, we not only can move around a lot of iron, mm -hmm. but we can move around a lot of money, and knowing that, as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia-Pacific Security Affairs, I got uh, a five-year appropriation of $450 million for the Maritime Security Initiative, which was designed to build capacity among 
our Southeast Asian partners primarily. When you came into OSD in, in 2014, what did you see as your kind of main goals for the region and, and you were responsible for Asia? I saw my main goal as carrying on our tradition of ensuring that no single power dominates the East Asian portion of the Eurasian continent. And in order for that to happen, the countries around China's periphery have to be independent. They have to be able to uh, maximize their, pursue their interests vis-a-vis -vis China and the other great powers involved in the region as vigorously as possible. And in Southeast Asia, in a, a region that is not the highest American strategic priority, um, that means ensuring that, that our like-minded friends in Southeast Asia, particularly around the South China Sea, are strong, prosperous, and independent. I, I spent a lot of time working on South China Sea, and there were two focuses in that regard. One was the Chinese reclamation of land uh, on the seven features they occupied in the South China Sea, and the Chinese militarization of those features once reclaimed, and the strengthening of our alliances and partnerships in the region and in the vicinity of the South China Sea. What the Chinese were doing on those features wasn't the only issue. The other very important issue was who's friends with whom. Frankly, we lost the first round on, in the South China Sea at the end of the Obama administration only partly because the, the Chinese were successfully militarized those features. The other reason was because the Chinese flipped our allies, the Philippines, on us. They turned the Philippines around after President Duterte was elected. Um, and that took a lot of the diplomatic wind out of our sails and out of the sails of other like-minded countries like the Vietnamese on the South China Sea. That was not the last round. On that, there was a lot of discussion with China on raising this issue, and you had mentioned Secretary Clinton's speech at ASEAN uh, Regional Forum in 2010, but then there was a number of other series of engagements to tell the Chinese that this is an important issue for freedom of navigation for the United States in our bilateral relationship. Uh, some of that culminated in Xi Jinping's visit here in 2015, in which he came to the South Lawn of the White House, and my writing of the English of that agreement was him saying that the Chinese had no intention to pursue militarization of the South China Sea. Well, I think the Chinese have not lived up to President Xi's South Lawn declaration. I think they've continued to militarize the features uh, they occupy in the South China Sea, and I think that should remain an important uh, focus of our attention. And in terms of the, just stepping back, at that time you were at the Department of Defense and you had a voice at the interagency table of kind of elevating an issue to that level and really making it clear to the Chinese side that if you want a successful visit of your president to the United States, this issue needs to be addressed in a satisfactory way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of how that issue got put forward? My experience is that when we 
approach, particularly a visit to the United States by the Chinese president, two approaches on the U.S. side are in play. First is, historically, we have always believed across both Democratic and Republican administrations that the Chinese will often sacrifice substance for form when it comes to a visit uh, to the United States by their leaders, whether it's a state visit or an official working visit, that the Chinese want to be treated right. And we want to have understandings on substance about the relationship or about issues in the relationship. And the Chinese are willing to trade substance for form in many cases. The second approach is that in order to get what you want on an important issue in connection with a visit of the Chinese president, you have to reduce it to one issue. You have to define what you want from the Chinese very, very clearly and carefully, and then you have to press them relentlessly in the months leading to the visit at all levels of the government. We did that successfully I think, uh, in advance of the March 2015 visit by President Xi on the subject of cybersecurity and cyber theft. And I think we did that perhaps somewhat less successfully in the run-up to President Xi's September 2015 visit in which we focused on the South China Sea. What do you think we should take away from how to deal with China and kind of what works in a a negotiating sense and in a discussion with Chinese officials? I think first is that um, I want to go back to the 18th and early 19th century French diplomat Talleyrand, who was known at the time as a shifty but resourceful, corrupt survivor who survived as foreign minister or in other capacities through six French administrations during and after the French Revolution, including the revolutionary government, the Napoleonic government, the restoration government, and the the, uh, provisional government that made peace with the Allies in 1815. And even someone as wily as Talleyrand believed that the essential element in successful diplomacy was good faith and trust. And I believe that that's the case with diplomacy today, and I believe that's the case with diplomacy between the United States and China, that you need to have at least a minimum reservoir of trust on both sides in order to conduct effective diplomacy. And that's something I think that uh, we see is lacking right now and needs to be built. Secondly, you have to be very, very clear about your goals and how to achieve them with the Chinese, and you have to be very clear in conveying to the Chinese what those goals are. Um, And that's something that successive administrations, I think, have not done as effectively as they could. Third, in order to generate leverage, diplomatic leverage vis-a-vis the Chinese, you need to have a strong regional position. In order to engage them effectively, you need to be a good rim strategist. You need to have the strongest possible allies. You need to have friends. And all of them need to be saying the same thing to the Chinese. Ambassador Scheer, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to work with you and great to talk to you again and uh, have you recollect your uh, amazing career. Thank you, James. Ambassador David Scheer speaking with me from Washington, D.C. 
You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.